Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I think it's the journey, isn't it? Again, why do I keep moving to these different countries? Why do I keep uh, wanting to learn another language? It's not exciting being able to speak French. It's exciting learning French. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to documentary maker and presenter Andrew Gold. Hi, this is Steve Whiteley, comedian, actor, filmmaker and writer, all-round ADHD creative. And welcome to my new podcast, Balancing Acts, where I talk to an array of creatives ranging from comedians, actors, directors, all sorts. And we talk about how they find a sense of balance or not between their creative lives and their everyday lives and how that has an impact on their mental health and beyond. Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Andrew is a journalist, TV presenter, documentary maker who speaks five languages. He's lived in six countries. And he specialises in producing documentaries on bizarre and controversial subcultures. His documentary, Exorcism, The Battle for Young Minds, was broadcast on BBC Three and was Sunday Times Pick of the Week. Andrew's created documentary pilots for HBO and he's represented England in beer pong, but ultimately lost to a 12-year-old Panamanian girl. This was a fascinating conversation. This is the first time I've talked to a documentary maker of Andrew's ilk, somebody who is completely immersed in his subject matter as not just the documentary maker, but also as the, the host or presenter of the show. Andrew explains how he came to live in six country in over six years and learned five languages along the way and um, his journey into becoming uh, an investigative documentary maker and presenter and how he figured out how to develop his own niche. He explains how he used his time whilst working as a journalist at The Sun to get better at being in front of camera and Andrew describes how he moved to Colombia and started his learning curve making documentaries there from scratch. From Colombia he moved on to Buenos Aires where he uh, filmed his BBC3 documentary series on exorcism and made an HBO pilot so he described that whole experience and we talk about this idea of faking it until you're making it and sticking to your guns in terms of your goals and visions and what you want from each project 
uh, why Andrew embraces fear of the unknown, the crash that comes when you complete your creative project. And Andrew talks about his experience of making uh, a current documentary he's working on on paedophiles and what it was like, the, the emotional and mental impact it had on him spending time with these, these people on a regular basis. He talks about how he's struggled with OCD in the past and we discuss the idea of falling into the trap of things happening too easily and how that can set a precedent which is easily undone. Andrew also breaks down how he's grown his podcast from scratch and um, explains how it was featured in the Apple New and Noteworthy section and loads more. This is a really fascinating conversation. So um, if you are an aspiring documentary maker or you are a documentary maker yourself and uh, you want to know more about Andrew's journey, then uh, this is a great conversation to listen to. So yeah, enjoy. And remember, as always, if you like this conversation, please do rate and review us on Apple. It really does make all the difference. And now, without further ado, over to Andrew. Perfect. How have you found these these past strange um, months? Not all that different for me, actually, because I spend so much time just sat at home. I mean, you know, I make documentaries and things, but those are few and far between, to be honest. You you know, that's once a year if I'm lucky. So a lot of the way I earn money is just like writing online, which is quite a boring thing to do and to talk about on a podcast, but (laughs) that's just the reality of it. So I'm just sat here where I am now, like all the time, writing as much as I can. And it's like, I'll get that out of the way. And then spend the rest of the day looking up like ideas for the podcast, ideas for documentaries and writing a book, like a million things that don't earn any money. So yeah, I'm in Berlin and it's just, yeah, my life hasn't really changed very much apart from that. I can't really go home and visit as much as, as I'd like. So yeah. How are you with the solitary nature of what you do? Um, I think I quite like it, you know, um, it's, it's become more and more and more solitary. It's become, you know, I'm almost a hermit and, you know, friends. I, do, I mean, I'm, I move countries all the time as well. So this, I mean, being in Berlin now, this is like the sixth or seventh country I've been in in the last like seven or eight years. So I'm always sort of moving away whenever I've got like a group of friends or something, I sort of move away and become solitary again. This time round, I'm now 31. So I'm just a little bit more... You know, when I first moved abroad, I was 23. Well, first time I was like 21, I moved to France. And then 23 was like Colombia. And I was so excited. I was like going around meeting everyone and getting like whole friendship groups. And I was single as well. Now I've got a girlfriend of like six years. Um, and so, yeah, I do, you know, I've got one mate basically within like a thousand miles. His name's Thomas. He's quite nice. He's Dutch. And that's it. That's usually are quite nice people. Yeah. Very, right. very amiable. Yeah, some of them. <laughs> yeah. He's he's all right, yeah. He's pretty lonely as well. And then it just happens to men though, doesn't it? I used to always think about that when I was 20 odd, you know, I had a million friends, we all did, or you know, when you're 18, 19. Uh, I used to think about my dad and I was like, God, he's got like two mates. And then, you know, I've reached that age, well, not quite that age, but it's happening sort of, you know, do you find that happening? Fewer friends? Uh, yeah, well, I've definitely been, always been more of a quantity over quality type of person but i definitely agree with you when i was younger you have this big social group and then as you get older people get married they get responsibilities and you just make less of an effort i do think men are less socially inclined than than women overall so um if we don't do anything they if we don't make arrangements they tend not to happen No, exactly. A hundred percent. She's always, yeah, my, my girlfriend's messaging people today, like to get people to come over to get this and that. She wants me to come along. And 
I just, yeah, it's nice. It's always nice. And I, I love doing it, but I like a one-on-one maybe rather than lots of people. Okay. So the, the travel, your, your sort of, tra- your life of, of living abroad in different countries, you said, you know, you lived in six different countries. Mm. I'm very envious. I've mm. always wanted to live in another country and I never have. I've traveled a bit, but I've, I've never done it. You not only have managed to do that, but you have established a career an interesting career whilst doing that at the same time was your did you know what you wanted to do career-wise from from an early age and did you also know that you wanted to tie that in with your your traveling interest well the traveling interest that wasn't an early age but the okay. uh, as a teenager i was like i loved uh, louis through you know who doesn't yeah. everyone loves louis through i know i'm now so bitter about him because i can't get to the same level as him i get you know what and i'm sure you've had this as an actor as well when when you know you'll see someone who just gets all these opportunities and there are things that he does that I could never dream of being able to do. I think when you're, when you're at the lower end, um, you know, you've made documentaries for BBC or whatever, but like, it's still, it's, it's a push every time you want to get another one made. It's not easy. And they often ask things like about your identity and stuff like that. So it's always like, Oh, but you want to make something about abortion, but you're not a woman. You can't do that. And then you see like Louis Theroux just made one about um, postnatal depression. And it's right. like, oh, how did he get to do that? So you end up really bitter. Um, I ended up bitter, but not not in a, in a sort of jokey way. I mean, he's amazing still. But yeah, I loved I loved watching him, and so I thought I could do that. You know, and you think about it at, when you're getting older, you start to think, you know, what am I good at? And I thought I'm quite good. Uh, maybe people listening might disagree, but I think I'm good at sort of just chatting and stuff. Mm. I couldn't be an actor, never, because I get red in the face. I forget all the words. I start laughing. You'll but if pushed. it's just me. Would you do that as well? I mean, surely not. Why? So, so I'm thinking about a change of career. <laughs> you look great from your reel. It always looked very, you know, I, you. great acting and stuff. But, but yeah, it was. It just felt like okay, I can do this. When I, I studied English literature at university, and there was this one day um, mm. that just changed everything, really, mm-hmm. because I never thought of going abroad or learning languages or anything like that. And it just so happened that somebody had pulled out of doing the Erasmus trip to France. Um, a few people had pulled out in in, in the French group or whatever so they, they emailed the english literature department and just said does anyone fancy going i'd never thought about it i just happened to be reading my emails at the time so i was the first person of the 500 or so who would have gotten that email to reply mm-hmm. i just went yeah why not i thought if i don't want to do it i can think about that later but i'll just say yes now so i went to montpellier uh to study and then i went back there after university as well i went to bordeaux then um and just i was amazed that i could actually learn a language it was just something that i never ever was good at school, never thought anyone English could do. I thought it was only foreigners could learn other languages. And that just gave me this real thirst for like picking up more languages. So I speak five now. Wow. Um, Cause I just got addicted to it. And did you, did you discover a certain way of learning language, which worked for you or was it just a case of, of immersing yourself in the country and picking it up? Well, the first time round, right, it was it was hard. It's always the hardest time. So with the French, it was hard. And I did think the first few months, I can never do this. Uh, I was saying, yeah, but I was also fascinated by how it, the mechanics of a language, things that we don't think about, the way the French, for example, can't pronounce often the word like shit or, or bitch. They say beach and sheet. Mm. Right? So they can't get that right because they don't have it in their language. Mm-hmm. What they do have is a distinction between all and u which we don't have. So we can't really hear that that well. Mm. Uh, but the, the problem with that is that if you say merci beaucoup, that means thanks, nice ass, right? And I was going around France saying that to people. Um, 
And that was just fascinating. So I spent all night, like I would just not go to sleep and I'd be going beaucoup, 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 beaucoup to get the difference between the all and the So that stuff fascinated me. And then I, 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 got, I had at the time a French girlfriend for like three years and she was, you know, uh, very stubborn about learning English. She refused, uh, very, like a lot of French people do. So she didn't speak a word of English. So that was how I learned that. But then with Spanish and the others, were, you know, Portuguese and German, and I count English as well, obviously, so I can have five rather than four. Um, audio tapes, uh, there's like loads of audio classes you can do, uh, which are quite expensive, but you find a way to get them, you know. Yeah. Um, books, I read Harry Potter every time in, in the language. Okay. Or sort of push the, because you could just push it and it would show you what the word was. So those kinds of things. That's and just smart. becoming yeah obsessed just becoming totally obsessed with it so 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 yeah the language thing and then, then it was like okay i want to do this louis through kind of thing what age were you when you when you decided that's what you wanted to do uh the louis stuff i guess it wasn't there was never like a definite decision it was more of just a that's something in my mind i never thought i'd be uh anywhere good enough to ever sort of get a documentary on the bbc or anything like that because it's mm-hmm. just like a one in a million you you need so much luck um but I thought journalism's cool. I like reading. I like writing. I now like languages. I'll get a journalism. Um, I got after university. I got a qualification in journalism um, in London, um, and it was yeah. That was that was um, okay. Journalism. I'm going to write. I might work for a newspaper. I worked at the Sun for a bit. Um, horrible newspaper, but it was just like they were paying money to work, <laughs> you know, which most people. I mean, the Watford Observer we're offering like 13,000 a year or something. You can't live on that. No. So, you're so did you, did you grow up in London? Yeah. Watford. Okay. I grew up in Edgware. Oh yeah. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's my, my dad's, well, my dad's house was in Edgware. My mum was in Carpenter's Park. Oh, okay. Bushy. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Not far at all. Local yeah. North London lads. Are you Jewish? Can I ask that? Jewish. Yeah. Okay. I knew it. I knew it. As soon as I, I don't know what you can just tell there's a radar. You don't have to include that bit if you don't want to. Did you know before? Thing. No one ever picks it up. What, 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 I, was I doing lots of shoulder shrugging while we were on Zoom? Uh, it's probably your face or something. You can always, because I'm Jewish, it's just, you can always. You can just pick it up, uh, can't you? You just, I don't know, mate, you look like people I knew when I was younger. You look and talk oh, and sound like them. I, I don't know. <laughs> in a yeah. good way. In a, in a, you know, it's, it's nice. Um, acting is from Edgeware. Yeah, <laughs> it's the same as me. It's the same thing. It's the same upbringing. That's nice to know. All, all the all the best creative people stem from Edgware. Edgware, it's all about Edgware. <laughs> God, uh, that place. Sacha Baron Cohen was down the road, wasn't he? he was, um, yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah. Elton John. <laughs> yeah. It's Penner. What? Here we go. Yeah, but what we... So you decided to pursue the, the path of, of journalism hoping to for it to transition to becoming a documentary maker so, yeah so how do you how do you make that jump from being a journalist to then being a front of camera documentary not just maker but then like yeah. i said fr- front of camera presenter as well well yeah it was it was a difficult jump um because firstly as i say like i couldn't do what i've seen you doing i couldn't act uh and presenting does have obviously you know some qualities of acting in it you yeah. you you're, you're sort of acting, playing yourself almost. It's, it's not exactly you, but you're trying to be yourself. N- now it's much more natural, but at the beginning it was like, I was so like stiff all the time. So what I started doing at the sun, I was working nights actually, um, and just writing nonsense about like Beyonce's new haircut or whatever. I know nothing about that world, but that was the okay. kind of thing I had to 
write. And I was working until like four or five in the morning. And I said to my editor one day, I was like, hey, why don't I start making like video content? And like, I knew someone in the video team and he was like, I'll go out and shoot you and edit it and stuff. Why not? Uh, and he was like, the, edit, the editor, he's this real, like the thick of it kind of character, Scottish fella, very just nuts, shouting across everywhere. And he was like, no, don't need that. And I was like, yeah, but it would be good, wouldn't it? We'd get me with, on the screen and everything. He was like, nah, nah. And I was like, come on, I'll just, let me just do it. He was like, nah. So I just went and did it anyway. And it was really, really cringy, embarrassing stuff that, that nowadays would be ridiculous. But it was just stuff like, it was Valentine's Day. So it was like, I was 21 and I was like, can I get a date on Valentine's Day or whatever? So it's just okay. me talking to people in the public. Another one was like, I because this was what I wanted to get done anyway, because I wanted to get my back hair removed, like laser removal. Okay. And again, you could get it like done free by doing it with like some health, uh, some, some some spa or whatever for the health section of the sun. So mm-hmm. those kinds of things I got done. And then I showed it to this guy. I was like, look, it's fun and interesting, isn't it? To the editor. And he was like, nah. But I just sort of put it on anyway at night because he goes home in the, at like eight o'clock or whatever. And I was like, oh, I'm just putting it up online. And he knew that obviously. So you put you know, up what on the sun's website? Yeah. W- without his permission? Yeah, yeah. I just popped it online. <laughs> Is that not like just, a fireable offense? Um, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't like the job. I've okay. been there already. So you had nothing to lose in that respect. Yeah. Right. I, if anything, it was the kind of thing where if I'd been fired, I, was, I would have, it would have been a relief. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it was very, it was very good money for a 21 year old, especially, I mean, since then I've been on like minimum wage, you know? So for like a year, it was like the only time in my life I've been earning money. Yeah. Uh, so it's hard to just quit a job like that. But I I didn't mind if I'd been fired or whatever, but I put it online and he sort of, he was, it was, it was this kind of thick of it kind of character. Cause I think he sort of maybe part of him actually admired the, the chutzpah or whatever you'd say, Mm. you know, the, the, the sneakiness of what I did. Yeah. So (laughs) uh, yeah, he was fine. And I put it online. Nobody gave a shit about them. They, they weren't great material, you know, but it just gave me this feeling a little bit more confident each video you make. And it was like, that's so important though, isn't it? The pushing through that phase where, you know, you start off at something, you haven't done it before. Inevitably you're going to be shit at it and being able to push through takes, I think you've got to have a certain degree of confidence, but your confidence increases with each new project that you do, or each new video that you release. Yeah, I think so. I think there are different types of people, of course, right? And people listening to this, they'll all be of the different varieties. But like I look at, there's a, there's a big male-female divide as well because I think women are taught from a really young age, like don't jump into that puddle and that kind of thing when they're little girls or whatever, whereas the boy is told like, hey, you can climb that tree. So I think the fear of failure often, if I can generalize, and it is an absolute generalization, is often stronger among, among women because of the way they're raised in our society. Uh, I found that with, you know, people I know, women I know anyway, uh, with guys like, I'll just do it, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I've never really cared about failing. I mean, I I always hear like, uh, you always hear these stories about the Beatles or JK Rowling or someone. And it was always like, oh, they, you know, they got rejected seven times before they finally, and it's like, I got rejected seven times before breakfast this morning, you know, (laughs) like, Mm -hmm. who cares? Like, get on with it. Keep pushing it. Like a rejection makes me feel more like I want to, and if you're bad at stuff, yeah. All right, look at what I did wrong and, and do it better, you know? Yeah. So what what was at the point then? So you go from working in the sun and you know, fast forward 2018, you are you're fronting, presenting your own documentary on BBC three. Mm. And then at the yeah. same time you've been 
learning these languages and living in these different countries, how did that all, how did that come about? Because mm. from my perspective, I would think, okay, yeah, you've got to, you have to stay in London or stay in the UK and just focus down and double down on that. And then, you know, just do that single-mindedly. But you managed to do that whilst also soaking in different cultures and learning languages, mm. which is quite the feat. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I mean, I guess one of the moments uh, that led to that was, like, so obviously I'd already done this thing of living in France, right? So a lot of it is like why people don't do that. It's like, fear of the unknown but i didn't i was lucky that i'd been put into that position of being having already lived in france yeah so there was no you know okay i'll do another country now there's also there's also an element of like uh you know the grass is always greener kind of thing it's like i'll go somewhere and be really happy for a year and then it's like oh you know if you're if i'm not entirely happy the reason must be oh i need a new location and the excitement that comes with that right there was this there was this real moment um I met like a friend of a friend of a friend who was like a, a producer. She was more of a radio producer, but had worked in TV. And I said, look, I made these things for the sun. I've got a journalism thing. I speak French. I don't know if that helps, but wh- how can I become like a Louis Theroux kind of figure? Cause it's, I don't know what word to use apart from, I guess, a documentary presenter, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said to me, and it's controversial, but this is what she said. It was just as a white man right now, this was like eight years ago. She was like, you've, you can't. She was like, you, you, there is literally no chance in hell that you can do that. And, and she, wasn't, she wasn't saying that in like a really anti-woke way or anything. She was just like, she was saying it like, you know, you've had your fun, white men. Um, it's not going to happen. And I was like, well, what can I do that can get me something that anyone, you know, they've got to have some white men. It's, you know, it's, it's, they can't hire nobody who is a white male. I figured, what can I do? And I was looking at documentaries. I was looking at the stuff that... Stacey Dooley was doing and Reggie Yates was doing. Reggie Yates was going to Russia and doing all this stuff. Stacey Dooley was doing some stuff in like Brazil. I saw another documentary maker, Billy J.D. Porter. Uh, she's great. And she, she was doing a whole series in South America called The Secrets of South, South America. And I was thinking like each time you watch them talk to foreign people, these are all international foreign stuff. And they're talking through translators. And it was just really quite stunted and I think it reminded me a little bit of like, you know, it was the equivalent documentary equivalent of, of laughter tracks in, in sitcoms. It was stuff that was a bit dated for me where, you know, Stacey Dooley would ask a question and you know, that person hasn't understood what she said and that they've cut it. And the present, the translator has, you know, and they can't have an argument the way that Theroux would have had with the Nazis who were American, for example, they can't have an argument. They can't have the entertainment value is limited. And I thought, I'll be the guy who speaks the languages. That's, that's what I can offer. So the next move was like, where can I go? I had a cut. My cousin was out living in Venezuela. Uh, and I thought Spanish is going to be the easiest language to learn after French. Um, so I went and moved out to, to Medellin, uh, where Escobar, Pablo Escobar was from. Um, and, and just lived there for a year and learned Spanish. And just looked around for like anyone who was like interested in making documentaries and those kinds of things. I did find a woman um, who was really into it, and she, but she, she, she was difficult because I wanted to make stuff like you know you're in Medellin, so I was like, okay, I want to make stuff about Escobar, drugs, plastic surgery, cocaine, all, all that stuff. And she was like, those things are all very offensive to me because I am Colombian and I don't want the world to think of us like that. So she wanted to make like. Uh, like a food thing, like um, Anthony Bourdain or something, you know? I yeah. don't care that much about food. 
But I was like, okay. So we made some stuff like that. Terrible, awful stuff, right? But we made them. And it was just another way of like, okay, I'm in front of the camera. I'm practicing. I'm talking to the camera. I'm talking to people. And how were you filming it? How did you source all your, your camera equipment, et cetera? She just, this woman, she had the gear. She had it. Okay, great. Yeah. She had the gear. Fortunate. She was, yeah, yeah. Well, that's how I met her. I think I must, I don't remember how I met her, but it must have been like Facebook. Does anybody know a camera person who wants to work on some projects? Okay, got you. That kind of thing. And yeah, we met a couple of times and then her boyfriend came along a couple of times and helped with the sound. It was, it was all just dreadful, but it gave me an idea of like what I don't want to do, which was sure. that, you know? Okay, uh, okay. I, wa- I wanted it to be real. I, I don't like, again, it's acting that I'm not comfortable with. Like, I, oh, look, there's some food here. Like, it's, it's not me. I then, yeah, felt dreadfully unhappy after about a year in Colombia. I didn't like the culture that much. I didn't like the climate, which is, it, it's the perfect climate. It's the city of eternal spring. Uh, it's just spring days every day. And I felt miserable because you woke up and you just already knew it was a perfect spring day. <laughs> so I wanted to sometimes have rain and sometimes have darkness and, you know, I, I need that. So I moved down to Buenos Aires in Argentina where I spent six years. That was, that's my dream. I spent, really? I spent uh, six weeks in Argentina and I, was, I fell in love with Buenos Aires. Oh, so it's like, I'm going to end up living here, but I didn't. Um, but yeah, do go on. What was that experience like? You could still move there. It was, it was, yeah, there's still time. The thing is, people like, I think, I think some friends think like I'm a traveler, right? But I don't travel. Like when I'm in a country, I very rarely see any cities there. I sit at home. I had a PlayStation out there. I played FIFA on it all the time. Uh, I don't have one here, fortunately, because it's, it's not good for your mental health just playing FIFA. Yeah. Uh, But it was very much a a cozy life that I could have been living back in England or anywhere. I might. So, so hold on. So you're, you're in this amazing place with, yeah. uh, there's tango in the streets, <laughs> these beautiful women, these beautiful steaks. I mean, it's yeah. just, you know, it's, it's, it's very different to London setting and particularly uh, in the suburbs, North London suburbs. But yet you're, you're staying in and you're not experiencing this oh, city. Yeah. Yeah. Not enough. Not enough. I'm not, not enough. big. I'm not big on that. I, I sort of, you know, I've never been like a museum person. Uh, right. And it took it took years to be able to admit that because especially because I studied English literature and stuff okay. like that, I think you're expected or the friends you meet there expect a certain sort of uh, pre- pretentiousness about art and stuff, you know. Yeah, but I was just like, that nah, can't be bothered. My legs get tired. <laughs> get tired. I'm not love interested. Right. <laughs> I get bored of it. I'm bored of. I love movies. I love movies like like the, you know film and stuff. I love that. Yeah. stuff. but I watch it on my computer at home. I just okay. Listen. So, <laughs> hold on, like, but, like, but yeah. obviously, you there needs to be a certain you need to be inquisitive, right? In terms of to do what you do as a career, as, as a journalist and documentary maker, was there not a part of you that thought, well, I, I need to get out there and have adventures and soak it in to to find my next project? Sure, yeah, there is that, and it's but it's it's always a very human thing I'm looking for, so it's never like I, I'm never. I, don't get me wrong, I went to see the big waterfalls and everything. I was. Yeah, exactly. I yeah. went and saw like all the the vineyards in Mendoza. Sure. I went down to Bariloche. So I did all that. It took me about five years to get down there. It was stuff like, oh God, I might actually leave this country without having seen those things. I'd better go. Right. Um, I have to push myself to do it, but nothing gets me out of bed more, you know, to go, go out the house than like an exorcist, for example, <laughs> you know, it's all human. I'm much more interested in humans than stuff, if you know what I mean. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so talking ab- about that, because that's what your BBC three documentary was, was based on, wasn't it? Yeah. 
exorcism, the battle for young minds. Yeah. It was, is that something that happened in, in Buenos Aires then? And if so, how did that, how did that whole idea come about? Well, so first I found like a group of, um, they were, they were Dutch and it was actually the, my, my Dutch mate who's now in Berlin, this guy called Thomas. I met him at some sort of uh, language event because that's what I was doing before I met my, my girlfriend who is Argentine. I was going to language events because um, I was just obsessed with the language. I just loved it. I, I'm like, oh, I'm going to speak a third language. I can't believe it. It was so exciting for me. And I met this fella, Thomas, um, and he was like, hey, I work at a production company, a bunch of Dutch guys in Buenos Aires. So we got together, pitched a bunch of ideas to a TV channel in the States called Fusion, never expecting to hear back. And then like months later, I got this call and they was like, hi, is this Andrew Gold? And I was like, Ter- terrible accent. I can't do accents. But I was like, yeah, it's me. And they were like, uh, yeah, we want to do, I'm not going to do the accent anymore. But they were like, we, you, we've got your infidelity idea. I had some idea about like infidelity, cheating. I just wrote down like a bunch of nonsense. And then they were like, we want it. And they, they Wait, paid like. Sorry Fusion. to interrupt you there. So when you say you wrote down a bunch of nonsense, were you just sending them log lines as in like, you know, two, two line descriptions, or were you actually sending them like a fully fleshed out brief on each idea? It was log lines. It was, it was okay. log lines. And right. It, we, yeah, the, the guys at this production company, the Dutch guys had met some of the fusion people that yeah. owned by Latin American people. So they have like a bit yeah. of an interest in Latin America. So we thought, why not? Let's try it. Send a bunch of emails. And we had like a list of like 10 log lines for different ideas that we okay. really weren't fleshed out. It was my first experience trying to do these kinds of things. So like, okay. I didn't, I didn't know what's going to work and what won't. And of all of them, I didn't expect, you know, there was stuff like Nazis in, in the South of Argentina who'd escaped, uh, you know, Germany and, had, you know, German towns in Argentina, that kind of thing. Yeah. I didn't think they would take cheating. Cheating was just that I had noticed that there was a much more open culture around cheating in Argentina, in my opinion. That was right. As in what people were more forgiving? I think so. They were a little bit more forgiving about infidelity. It was a little bit more expected, particularly among men. There were nights that were like cheating night, Thursday night. There's a radio uh, program that I went on. It's the most popular radio show in Argentina where people call in and they say, you know, I fancy my friend's girlfriend or my friend's mom. And they they then hook you up on the phone on the radio and you have to tell them. (laughs) And they have to decide if they want to get off with you. How so, would that usually go down? It, surprisingly well, which made me think, I wonder how much of it is scripted or I don't know. Right, okay. But, you know, you'd get like, the one I remember that stood out was it was someone's mum that he was calling. And the rules are you have to ask three normal questions and then you have to say an Argentine slang equivalent of, you know, do you want to make out or something? Okay. Um, so he called up, this guy called up and the mum's like, hello. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's me, you know, James' his friend. Um, and he, they were like, uh, she's like, okay, that's weird, but hi. Uh, how are you? Good. And so three questions and then dar para dar say, like give to give oneself or something. I don't know. And right. she's like, oh, hmm, hmm. And she's like thinking about it. And you're like, what? And anyway, this whole thing got me thinking about cheating. The thing was when, when they... <laughs> When Fusion said they wanted that, it was like, oh shit, we've actually got to come up with an idea. And how do you film cheating? And we found it incredibly difficult in the end. Nobody wants to be on camera, of course. Oh, so yeah. we ended up going to, we went to like these sort of brothel kind of places. And we went, it, it, it's not a great documentary. Um, but I ended up um, <laughs> being on the radio at the same time as Vigo Mortensen out in Argentina because he's from, uh, he grew up there in Argentina. 
so he sort of opined on the whole idea of the cheating thing and sort of made fun of us he was like that's a ridiculous idea um and all that and then we ended up on all these tv channels um i ended up making some joke like they were all having a go at me these argentines on these tv live tv channels like the equivalent of have i got news for you or whatever or news night oh, i don't know what yeah and they're all shouting at me going like oh what do you mean we cheat we don't cheat more than the english blah blah blah, blah. and don't you like sex in england and i said as a joke just like i wouldn't know i've never done it and they all just went hmm, okay and then I did, they, they moved on to the next subject. So they, they took me at my word. And then I didn't know, but underneath me, a banner came up saying um, England's <laughs> ultimate virgin, uh, <laughs> Andrew Gold. So, and I got people in the street like being, oh, it's the virgin and all that. And my girlfriend got it at work and stuff like, oh, you're not seeing that virgin guy, are you? Man, <laughs> which I, I thought was just funny because those are the kinds of things I live for. You know, that's, yeah. I, I don't care about seeing the, the, the main like landmarks or whatever but yeah like, sure okay yeah we do yeah yeah that's uh those are the little those are the stories you tell your grandkids yeah about being a virgin yeah but um anyway I'm t- I'm how was i even here <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh yeah that's a fair point actually <laughs> but yeah so so the exorcism thing happened i i started emailing people at the bbc and i said look here's the stuff i made for fusion which was they sold in the end to hbo which was a bit of a coup it was like oh now I get to say I made this stuff for HBO. Was it broadcast on uh, HBO? No idea. Probably not. I mean, I, this, this, the mad thing is, is like I'm presenting these things. There were two of them we made and, and yeah. one extra, one mini documentary. Another one we did was hunting for UFOs in, in Cordoba in Argentina. Right. Um, but and they, they, they spent a lot of money on it, like more than I got for the exorcism BBC stuff, a lot more. Um, yeah. Just for these like five minute videos, five, 10 minute videos. But it's America. It's different. It's different, different ball game. Budgets out there. I've talked about this with people in the podcast before. It's, it's the the holy holy grail in terms of budgets. That's for sure. We couldn't believe it. They were just like you know. There's like me and two Dutch guys just do with you know basically faking it till you make it to to an extent. Yeah. Um. And they were like, here's fifteen thousand dollars to go for like three days to make something. I mean, that's that's I've never seen money like that in my life. I don't you know. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Although a couple of days before we started filming the first one, they did email saying, uh, Andrew, can you just send us like all the other stuff you've done before? And I was like, I, I don't have any other stuff. I, I can't send them the stuff from the sun. I can't send them this cooking stuff I did in Colombia. So I was like, oh, well, I'm, I am a journalist, but you know, I haven't, I haven't really got all that stuff. And they replied like, oh, well, don't worry about it. We're just sending down our own guy to be the presenter, uh, some American guy. So, and I was like, no, 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 but I'm going to do this. And by the time they'd even, you know, they sent him, he was on a plane from Miami. Just like the next day, they like put this guy on a plane. Is this, who was a well-known presenter? Just some guy that they'd been using for some time, some American guy who I guess works for them. I think he was a staffer there. They always trust okay. the staffers. Right. And uh, he's on his way down and I'm just having like arguments back and forth. It was my big break, if you, if you know what I mean. I've been waiting for that for years. And I basically said in the end to them, like in a Skype meeting or whatever, I was like, look, if I'm not the presenter, I'm not doing it. And I was overplaying my hand a little bit because it's like, I'm not doing what? Well, I can't copyright my idea, which was basically infidelity in Argentina. You know, yeah. They could do it without me. Sure. But eventually they, they said, fine. They were like, okay, fine. But then we had to put up with this guy who'd been sent all the way down there to be the presenter. He was now sort of behind the scenes, so to speak. And he was sulking. Like, he was, yeah, it was just a bit of sulking, which put a, a lot of pressure on me. Go on, sorry. I think there's something to be said in the power of being willing to walk away. 
you know, to to go all in and just and and do that. I think you know in that situation you need to, and a lot of people probably you know understandably so would be okay. Well, you know, if it means it not getting made, then I'll compromise. But I think a lot of people who are single-minded that way, it's those type of those personalities that do kind of progress. Mm. Well, you hear about the ones when it worked, you know, it's still a risk. You of know, course, so it's always a risk, they could have, but you were willing yeah. to take it and it worked. I was willing to take it, but then the, the thing wasn't this particular, because I have thought a lot about that. I've thought a lot about, because I still get asked all the time. I still get asked like, hey, because I send my ideas in and I do get told like, hey, can we do this with a presenter who is not a white man, you know, right. and you can be behind the screen. And yeah. I, again, I'm always battling with this idea of like, do I just, do I push back? And then it, it probably doesn't get made. Yeah. Whereas in, in in this case, it was like, look, I don't even know this TV channel fusion. How much is it going to do for my career really being a, a production assistant behind the camera? What's that going to do for my career? Well, maybe it would do something. Yeah. I'm not somebody who grew up with a dream of being a production assistant or a producer. I wanted to be, if anything, I'll be a journalist. I can be a writer, but I'm not, I'm not really that bothered about being a producer. So it, it made sense then to, to really stick to stick to my you know principles whatever so how has that worked out since have you in terms of these other projects where they say look well you know it'll be your production you know but or you'll be attached as a producer and writer but you won't be uh, fronting it and you have stuck to your guns have they just have they said no or how, how's that worked out for you it's very complicated because it's hard to know exactly what's being said a lot of the time. So, so what will happen is I get, I've got an agent since the exorcist film, which okay. I'll go back to in a minute. Cause I'm sorry. I've got so long getting into that. Into That's the, all right. You know, but uh, yeah, it's it, what my agent will set me up with production companies. The production companies are all desperate to make a sale presenter led documentaries in the UK. You've basically got channel four, BBC one, no, not BBC one, channel four, BBC two and BBC three. Yeah. If you're not a big name, You've only got BBC Three, and BBC Three are not doing presenter-led documentaries. Like the last year or so, they've gone, they've moved away from that. Okay, so you've got no one basically. Right. right. But even if you have someone, it's maybe BBC Two. It's maybe Channel Four. Okay. Um, and what about the idea of you? Obviously, you need to fund it, but just creating and releasing your own sort of mini docs on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, or, or other platforms. Doing. That's what we were doing with The Exorcist. Okay. Um, oh, really? Okay. You did that before it went through the BBC? I had some meetings with the BBC after having done this stuff for Fusion. I was, I was going in. There's a bit of fake it till you make it. I, I think it's, 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 not, yeah, it's, it's not wrong to do it, I think, because I think everyone's doing it. So you're just leveling the playing field. Everyone's, every, everyone's doing it. And you know what? One of the biggest themes that has come out of me interviewing different people in this podcast is this idea of imposter syndrome. Uh, everyone everyone has it people you think look how how have you got it you've just had this incredible track record so i think everybody has a element to them where they're faking it till they're making it yeah you have you have to you have to i mean again when i had that guy sulking this producer from america and i had to Mm. do these talking to camera bits which i'm never good at even now i'm better than i was god um yeah (laughs) he he was just sitting there like watching me and i had to do about 50 takes and eventually the, the, the Dutch guy who was directing it just actually went over to him and said, do you mind actually stepping up, like maybe just going home or something like to your flat? Because I think it's putting Andrew off. It was partly him being there and partly just because I get so nervous about it. And you do yeah. think like, God, I, I can't do this, you know? But, but the whole time I always sort of thought, fake it till you make it, aim for the top. 
And I do remember, I remember talking to those Dutch guys and saying like, hey, we should make something for the BBC. And they were just like, hmm, there's no point. Don't get your hopes up. It's impossible. So that was when I sort of moved. I said to them, let's make stuff for free. And they were, they were like, I've made enough stuff for free, which I understand as well. Yeah. A lot of these guys were in their 30s. I was like, this was a few years ago for me. So I was like 27. Um, I went back to the UK and met up with some like BBC3 people. I just mm-hmm. emailed them, found their emails on LinkedIn, guest emails, said, hey, here's my showreel of stuff for HBO. I was at the Sun. Had some meetings. And they were like, you know, quite interested in some of the ideas. Uh, the problem is like, I, had, I had sort of made this whole persona around being able to speak foreign languages. But what I didn't realize before I set off doing that was that most commissioners want UK-based stuff. Most audiences want stuff about England. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't in my favour saying, they were like, do you have an exorcist in England? And I was like, no, but the whole point is... You just call him, I've got him on speed dial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One of my British exorcists. But I was like, no, but I've got this Argentine. And the whole point is I can actually speak to him in his language. It's going to be fun. Yeah. And they were like, oh, maybe. And then a few weeks later, it was a, it was a no, basically. Right. Um, so I got a friend of mine who's a director, a guy called David. He's, he's brilliant, David Hayes. And I said, look, come out to Argentina. We'll have fun. You can see if you can make it as a freelancer out here. And in between all of our work commitments and all that stuff, we'll go and shoot this exorcist. He's nuts. I'd been seeing him on TV. He'd been like, people took him seriously. And it was actually annoying me because I'm very secular, very, you know, against any paranormal stuff. And it began to annoy me and grate on me every time I saw like a very a reputable journalist talk to him as an equal and sort of say like, oh, so tell us uh, Tuesday, what's happening? And he's like, well, Tuesday, the planets are aligning. Make sure you've got some garlic in your pocket, all that kind of nonsense. Right. So I, you know, I spoke to him. I said, look, I've spoken to the BBC. They like the idea. So again, it was a bit of fake it till you make it because they hadn't, they sort of did like the idea, but they'd said no. And I was like, they want to see, they want to see a pilot. So can we come and shoot it with you? And he was delighted. He was just like, oh, the BBC, oh, yes, good, gracious, Lord, the Lord has blessed us with this, whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah, we went and just made it, me and my friend David. We had a couple of friends who sometimes came with, uh, it was his girlfriend or, or a guy called Demian Bio, who's, uh, who was like at the time a very young journalist who said, hey, do you want to come along and you can help with sound? I taught myself to edit like online. Right. So you had a, basically you had a very sort of skeleton crew. Okay. Oh yeah, most most of the times it was just me and David, and okay. he was sort of carrying audio the boom while also with a shoulder rig on his on his for the camera. Perfect. Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder: uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference and the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. Okay, back to the chat. So you make that and then it's broadcast on BBC Three. What was what impact did that then have on, on your career? Because now you've gone from you know, being a guy that sort of did, you know, some stuff from the sun, something you did a pilot for, for HBO. But now this is the really, this is the most notable thing you've done now as a docu- documentary maker and presenter. Yeah. What, what then happened as a result? Did you notice mm. did doors opening, magically opening now or? No, no. It was, <laughs> I wish I could say it was to be more exciting for the podcast. But well, firstly, I, I'd been very, I, it, this will sound mad, but I was really concerned about the documentary coming out for some time 
because I really, I really enjoyed making it. That was probably the happiest I've ever been. Uh, was was sitting there and editing it with my friend David and just going like, wow, what did he just say? Like the exorcist yeah, yeah. was saying stuff which would catch on that we hadn't heard that he'd said like, uh, uh, oh God, they're, they're, they're English. You shouldn't trust them because of the Falklands. And we'd hear these little snippets like, right, oh, he's right. a priest. What's he bothered about that for? Um, we loved it. And then the idea of it coming out was like, I don't know if I can really put it into words, but it's just this feeling of like, it's done now. That Anticlimax. Yeah, yeah. I was concerned about an anticlimax. I really right. was. Hmm. When you spend so long chasing this thing, that is the journey, and then finally you reach this destination, and you've made it, and you know, oh, now what? And then there's a crash there. You know, ultimately comes with that. Hundred percent. I always think about it this way that you know, like Louis Theroux's made fifty documentaries. Stacey Dooley's made even more, which you wouldn't believe, but she has somehow. What, what gets her out of bed to do documentary number 61, you know? So that's, that's, a depre- <laughs> that's a depressing thought, isn't it? But like, for me, it was like, this is my big documentary. I was anxious for, for months, not a, rather than being excited about what might happen. It was more like, oh God, I don't want to get to a stage where I'm making documentary number 10 or whatever. Now, in the couple of years since then, it's been impossible to get anything off the ground and COVID's made things even worse. So now I just think, God, you fool. Why did you think that way? I wish I had a million documentaries, but it was just something I was concerned about at the time. Maybe it was just how I felt in that moment. Is that, do you think, is that because you were valuing your mental health over your career goals? Yeah. I mean, the two are intrinsically linked. I'd, I'd, it's what you said before. I think it's the journey, isn't it? Again, why do I keep moving to these different countries? Why do I keep uh, wanting to learn another language? It's not exciting being able to speak French. It's exciting learning French. Got you. I've yeah. hardly, I've yeah. hardly spoken a word in French of French in like seven years. You know. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's a cool party trick. It's cool if somebody's at a party sure. and there's a French person there, and I can be like, ah, oh, we can talk. Mm. It's cool if somebody asks about the Exorcist uh, documentary. Um, I can be like, hey, look, it's on YouTube. These are cool things, right? Mm. But nothing will compare to learning French. It was the experience, isn't it? It's the, it's the yeah. experience of going through that. So where are you, where are you at now? You're, now? you're living in Berlin with your mm. Argentinian girlfriend. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. How did you manage to convince her to move to Berlin with you? And why did you <laughs> decide to move to Berlin? I'm really lucky that she's like really open about doing like cool stuff and, and other opportunities and things. So... It had to be somewhere else. After Buenos Aires, we did go to uh, Rio de Janeiro for a few months because I was desperate to learn Portuguese and why not? Yeah. Um, and then I was like, look, I want to move to Europe. She's a lawyer. So we were like, she wants bigger opportunities. She'd like to like move back. To, eventually, we want to move back to England. You know, if we're mm-hmm. going to have kids and stuff, better be near my family and all of that kind of thing. Um, so we looked at how we can move her because it's not that easy. It's a whole... Mm-hmm thing being argentine she didn't have any italian blood like a lot of them do um so yeah we looked up some stuff there was something called the working holiday visa which allowed her to move to germany or ireland france or denmark in europe uh for one year and then we'd have to figure it out you know um you don't want to end up getting married just for a visa you know it's not very romantic um so we did that and during that time she managed to get um a Polish visa through her great grandparents who had been like expelled from Poland or whatever. So we got really lucky with that, but we were already in Germany. We chose Germany over Denmark or Ireland or France, because again, I wanted to learn another language. Mm. Um, 
and she was quite keen on learning German as well. It was like a really cool experience for both of us. Mm -hmm. So we moved here and I started thinking, okay, what's the next idea? And it so happened that in Berlin, they've got like the most controversial therapy for pedophiles in the world. Okay. How did you find that out? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not one of them. I wasn't attending. I was just, <laughs> it was just that I, I'm always looking for crazy stuff. You know, I'm just looking at like, what is the most controversial thing about this city? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking into like the history and everything. They've got like a warped, weird, long history, which would take another day to get into. Mm. But their therapy basically here, um, they don't report pedophiles to authorities, which means like, they can have a pedophile come in and say like last week I did this and that um, and they will not be reported. They are allowed to go back onto the streets and, mm-hmm. you know, to potentially to offend again, which is why it's so controversial. Their argument is, yeah, but that's the only way we can actually get them to come in for therapy and stop them from abusing other people, children. Does it work? Um, they don't have stats. That's the issue. They were like, we can't oh. possibly have statistics because we don't know. If they're, you know, you could potentially look at the whole country and how many reported child molestations there are, but it's almost yeah. impossible to know. So they have a big argument all the time with the British equivalent who are really against that. The British guys, I went to meet them as well, and they were just saying like, no, this is, the British guys think you can cure pedophilia. So it's just a whole thing. But I ended up sort of writing a book about it and I'm trying to get a documentary away at the moment. Uh, it's with a big production company you've taken on to BBC two, which mm-hmm. I just don't think, I don't think it's going to happen, but like we'll, we'll see. But I've ended up like hanging around with loads and loads of pedophiles. <laughs> That's what I've been doing the last year. When What's I go that out, like? Fuck me, like, so the first time, right. Uh, it was this guy called, I don't know any of their real names and they're all. Uh, so as far as they say, they're all non offenders who have mm-hmm. been, voluntarily te- going to the uh the clinic i have met one guy who is an offender and i just thought it's not that interesting for the book and it's not someone i want to be around if you know what i mean but but these people are yeah they're all very different in my podcast i did one one episode with an 18 year old who's the head boy at his school who who is a pedophile and he talked all about that the first time was um yeah, the clinic put me in touch. They basically sent an email around to a lot of their patients saying, look, this journalist wants to talk to any of you. This guy got in touch and he says, hi, my name's Max, blah, blah, blah. Can you meet me at this address? So I looked up the address and it was a public swimming pool. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is bonkers. I've got to go and meet a pedophile now in a public <laughs> swimming pool. So, but that's the thing as well. That's why I was talking about like, okay, I'm not that interested in going to see the, um, like the, what's it called? The Brandenburg Gate or whatever. Yeah. I've seen it, of course. Yeah. But like, I, I'm sort of cycling on my way to a swimming pool to meet a pedophile. So I was sort of like excited by that, but also nervous. My heart was in my mouth. You know, what am I actually doing? It's not like I've got the BBC with me. I'm just doing this on my own. Turned up. And the thing was, he was there, but with this little girl who was like mm. 11. And I was like, is this your daughter then? And, and I said to her, is this your dad? And she was like, no, no. And then she went off to do whatever. And suddenly I was like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? This is the worst thing in the world. And I didn't want to mention it straight away. Like, why is there a little girl with you? So I was, because I thought it would scare him off. I don't know his real name. I need to find out more about him. So I sat down and sort of just asked him a little bit about his life. And then I said, so what about that girl? And then two other girls came over that had been with him at this pool and just said like, oh, can we have more money for the ice cream? Anyway, he said that he was babysitting these kids. And I was like, man, really? Jeez. 
yeah so i said well who do, 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 does, does the mum know or the dad do they know and she he was like yeah yeah the mum is cool with it she knows that i would she trusts me i would never i would never offend them anyway that led me on a whole thing like trying to meet the mum trying to meet other people i met a 25 year old woman who's attracted to babies the other week it's a dark subject sorry I might not Jeez, so <clears throat> let me ask you when you're so immersed in something that heavy how what kind of emotional and mental impact does that have on you or are you yeah. able to block it out you think this is just work that day no that day no that was a and actually a lot of days no i mean the, the end of the exorcist film he he locks me in a room um because he didn't like my questioning. I was questioning him. I was questioning some people about his relationship with a, a woman that he had exercised, um, which is really dodgy. And he locked me in a room with like his big cronies and screamed at me for like an hour in the suburbs, like impoverished suburbs at like one in the morning. Nobody knew we were there. He wouldn't let David come in the room, my director. So that was, I was shaking. I'm not somebody, I'm not intrepid. I'm not brave. My legs turned to jelly. And that's really hard to sort of then go home and my girlfriend's like, hey, you know, do you want to have, should we make dinner and stuff? And I'm like, I'm shaking. I'm really shaking. There are some people you watch like Vice went to do ISIS or whatever. It's like, I could never in a million years do that stuff because I get scared. And yeah, that first day at the swimming pool with this guy, I started, (laughs) I sort of left the pool having thought at the beginning of the day, okay, this is going to be interesting. Louis Theroux did one on pedophiles as well. How fascinating I'm going to be doing that. And then I found myself just sort of, I had to take a break and went across the road and just sat in this park for a bit. And I, like this emotion just hit me. It's not, I never cry. I'm not a cry. I cry in films. I watch films. I cry in real life. It never happens. And that was like the closest I came to it. Like my eyes teared up. It just very suddenly. And I couldn't explain exactly why, but it just felt so wrong so horrible dirty and that was difficult to get past for a good uh, a good few weeks the thing is i still speak to that guy max i still don't know what the deal is i've met the mum who lets lets her you know and she's nuts oh god i hope she won't listen to this but she's very ultra left wing and it's which can be scary and she just thinks you've got to give people a chance and you've got to trust people and i've said to her over and over i'm like yeah but you don't have, it's, it's, that's not for you. You can make those kind of risks. You can take this risk for yourself, but it's not fair on your children. They, they don't know about all of this. You can't be doing that. So yeah, it's, it's not good for the mental health. It's not, it's not good for me. It's not good for my relationship and all of that stuff. It stays with me at the same time, as you can probably hear from the tone uh, with which I speak about this, it's, you do get desensitized a little bit. I've been, I've been working on this project for like a, a year and a half, two years now. So I will, I am sometimes guilty of like, I'll start talking at a dinner party about this. Just like, Oh, I've been looking into pedophiles and stuff. And people are like a bit shocked and taken aback. And I, you know, it's something I have to remember that not everyone, I mean, my girlfriend now has been hearing about it so long that she's also desensitized to it. So we just chat about it very casually, but it's pretty shocking to some people, I think. So, what do you do outside of when you're away from from that work what what do you do to unwind and relax nothing i make the podcast i'm constantly where i'm sat now i'm here all day i i used to play a bit of football uh, but yeah covid and stuff i just um you're a workaholic I think so. And it's a weird thing because I never was at school or anything, you know, I never, okay. it sort of creeps up on you. Do you think that's because you found the thing, your passion, the thing that stokes your fire. And so you're all in on it. 
Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's a fear of like, what else am I going to do? Um, well, do you, when you say what, what else are you going to do, you mean it career-wise, but in terms of pastimes, there's lots you can do to relax and, and, and take yourself away from that. Yeah, I should do. I should do more. Again, my girlfriend's always, she's, you know, why don't you play, go out and see so-and-so. But I'm thinking, yeah, but I could do two podcasts this week or I could do yeah. sort of thing, something. I, I, I struggled with when I was a teenager with like obsessive compulsive disorder. Okay. And I think some of that, I am much better now, but like uh, some of that stuck with me. Right. It just means, especially if I get a rejection, if I get a rejection from something, it's like, I'm like doubling down. I will right, not right. stop. I, I'll go on LinkedIn and find the emails of like 20 more people and send a better version of whatever to them. So right. until I'm at a point where, I mean, look, I, I never really thought I'd be able to get a documentary out on the BBC like that. It won festival awards and stuff. And, you know, I, I never expected that. And I'm hoping more of that will come. But I'm not at a point where I'm making a living from making documentaries alone, right? And until I'm at that point, I don't think I'll be able to relax unless I switch careers so that is the end goal then because before you were saying you know you'd made this bbc3 documentary and then you didn't know if you wanted to go down the route of churning them out but you now having had the space between making that bbc3 documentary you're now yeah. very much back on that path of like i want to make documentaries for a living full-time yeah. yeah i think i fell into the trap both uh, a couple of times uh firstly right at the beginning when we got these things made with fusion and hbo mm. and then when the exorcist came out I made the mistake of thinking, okay, things are going to come quite easily now. And then you get to be in a place where it's a, it's a place of luxury where you're able to say like, but do I really want this? Yeah. Um, which is the same in all parts of life. You know, if, if you don't have food on the table, you're just thinking about that. Right. But once you've got food on the table and you've got a comfortable life, then you start thinking, Hmm, am I happy with my life? Am I depressed? Do I have this and that? The more, the more luxury you have, the more problems still come to you in other ways more money more problems baby <laughs> exactly more money more problems so that's definitely how i felt uh you know oh wow i've got this film with the bbc i'm probably going to be offered 20 now do i want that you know mm. it's been a year and a half since then and it's been a real struggle as it, i suppose it is for everyone in this industry as, as i'm sure you'll testify to so uh now it's just like you know it's the, the, the career equivalent of i just want to put the food on the table for now <laughs> then i can worry about whether i want what kind of food i want yeah of course and is part of the reason for you now running your own podcast because you then have an element of control over your career this is something that yeah. uh, is not somebody else's decision it's purely down to you yeah. to, to sort of turn into you know it starts off as an acorn type thing yeah, yeah, 100%. You asked before um, about like, if I thought about just making them for YouTube and stuff. And the th I did try that once or twice, which are small videos and things. Um, and I just found it was so hard to build up. Um, so tough. You know, yeah, you'd, I'd put a little video out and it would get like, uh, one might get a couple thousand views, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next video would just get 10 views. And I thought the second video was actually better than the first. I don't understand what was happening there. The podcast I tried as well. At the, I started trying the podcast and it seemed to be a little bit more cumulative. It was just a yeah, little bit This is the like, podcast on, on the edge. Yeah, on the edge with Andrew Gold. Yeah. And it just feels a bit like the next week kept having a little bit more than the week before, even if it was just one more. Okay. You know? And that gave me a feeling of progress. Yeah. It's, it's a way of just two things, I suppose. Yeah, it's taking back the control because mm -hmm. it's, it's so tiring as it would have been as being an actor you're always relying on a gatekeeper of some sort mm -hmm. and they might not like 
the look of you. They might not look like how you sound or what your name is like. You just can't, um, you just can't know. So you're taking some of that away. As you say, you're taking control. But again, I mean, that Exorcist film, they put it out on BBC and on their YouTube channel. So I couldn't see the stats on the B- on BBC iPlayer. But on YouTube, it was like within a few days, it was like a couple hundred thousands. You know, oh, you're just okay. seeing the number. Every time you refresh it, hundreds of thousands more. Yeah. I, you know, so I can have more control now and do all this stuff, but I, <laughs> I'm not getting a platform that's getting me anything like that. So yeah. It's you, you know, you want the best of both worlds, and there are only very few people in the world who have that where they have complete control. That's years in the making, though. That's, that's the thing that you know, so people don't realize. Yes, there's, there's a few people that seem to, you know, walk into it from a very young age, but that's that's few and far between. You know, it's yeah. like the, the 10 year overnight success story. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So maybe, I mean, look, if you and I both are both doing our podcast in 10 years, could be big. Deals. let's hope so andrew let's hope so i won't be speaking to you from my bedroom be... <laughs> yeah we'll both have offices i mean yeah. this is just my tv room i've yeah. had to tell my girlfriend to go in the bedroom while i talk well I've, I've had to tell the builders who are doing building work next day next door to keep it down so have you yeah the struggle is real my friend night? uh the struggle it's uh it's afternoon and one question I wanted to ask you on the podcast, you have such a wide variety of interesting guests. How do you find them and how do you secure them? Secure them sounds sort of a bit military, actually. (laughs) uh, I'm going to rephrase that. Yeah. How how do you invite them onto the podcast? (laughs) Yeah. um, I, so at the beginning it was a bit easier because it was just like, I've had 10 years of getting no from BBC and all these people like mm. no 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 and so there were just tons of ideas I, I I had that were waiting around so one was a woman who who was an ex-Muslim whose family were trying to kill her I wanted to make something about ex-cult uh, leavers and stuff like that so I already had her I had an ex-Hasidic Jew who who believes that the the community is involved in systematic but how do you find them how did you go about finding them was it similar to it just, I, I usually sort of seek out these documentary subjects yeah I don't I guess you're just always, always on. Your mind's always on. So since I was 22, anytime I saw an interesting story or an interesting thing about someone or someone mentioned, hey, I've got a friend and this happened. Yeah, you bank it. Yeah. It's It's the same in comedy. It's exactly the same in comedy. So if there's a funny scenario, a funny line, a funny story, I'll record it into my phone. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, you're you're always on to a certain degree. Always on. Mm. So I just went to my list and it was just like, okay, Rehana, that's her name. Uh, Here's her details. I right. just sent her a message. Okay. The other one was, uh, yeah, the first episode was Nate Phelps, who's the son of the founder of the Westboro Baptist Church. Uh-huh. Those guys. Yeah. They're awful people. But he's a defector as well. And I, I don't remember how I found him, but I just think it was uh, when I was looking into, I must have been looking into the documentary about this ex-Muslim and mm. looking at, I put like ex-religion, ex-Muslim, ex-Christian, ex-Jew, ex-Mormon, and, and into Twitter. And mm-hmm. I think it just popped up with his, it's in his uh, bio, Nate right. Phelps, just ex-Wesper or whatever. And that was cool because um, he's like, he was a big deal to me. Like they're a big deal, the Westboro Baptist Church, and he's, he's the main guy's son. So that's how it started off. Um, and then I obviously looked that if, if the BBC, if that exorcism documentary has given me one thing, it's that ability to be able to message these people and say, I'm so-and-so, I may have a small Twitter following, which I'm trying desperately to grow and it's just impossible. Mm. Um, but here's, here's me on the BBC, here's me on HBO, here's, here's these things and I'm doing a podcast and it gets 
you know, yeah, people are going to start taking it more seriously. That's the thing is that as you build these, um, you know, as you get all these projects behind you, you start to, you, you start to get taken more seriously inevitably. Had you messaged these people, you know, five years ago and you said you'd done a few videos for the sun, yeah. then it's not going to have the same effect as BBC and HBO. So all these things, I feel like one thing leads to another eventually. And then now you're at this position yeah. where you've got your podcast, you're able to, you know, reach out to these people and they're going to respond because they see those credentials. Yeah. They don't all respond. Right. Do, of course. Of course. Numbers game, isn't it? It is. And also I think in COVID, like everyone's got, I mean, it was already, I've got a friend of mine who works in podcasting and he said to me that uh, there are like more, people making podcasts than now than there are listening to them. Well, that's depressing, just, isn't it? It really is. But well, we are really just all sat either in our bedrooms or TV rooms making, just doing these things. Stuff, yeah. what, what else can we do? There are so, so many. So I also feel a little bit like if I ask, you know, one of these thought leaders, I mean, how many interviews have they done that day? How many, uh, what am I going to ask that's new? Why would they bother doing it if they're going to get a few extra followers? Or I think the same, but I think the only thing that also then comes down to what I was saying earlier about the imposter syndrome. So, yeah. like, you know, what have I got to offer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is that. But then you think about yourself and you think, like, I mean, I, I want to do anything at the moment because I just want to, like I say, just build the Twitter following. I also quite like talking about myself. It's just, this is a form of therapy, you know? Of course, going, yeah, yeah. Going through it all. And it's just, I, I suppose I've spent so many years now just locked away at home doing all this research. It's quite nice. The other thing that the podcast gives me and doing other people such as yourselves is it gives me like an outlet into the real world. I mean, this is, you know, obviously for the podcast, but this is really quite pleasant. Uh, we could have a beer and mm. it would be a social occasion. So in times of COVID, I think there's definitely that as well. So. Yeah, it's great. To, I mean, for me, it's been a blessing having this sort of human connection and you actually spend a period of time with someone just going, diving in deep you know, having a, a real quality conversation. Yeah. Yeah. The ones I found always found difficult for some reason, I'm starting to like learn about different kinds of people. And mm. the ones I've, I found a little bit difficult, have been like academics. If you get okay. like an academic on there, because they're not, or, or people are very high status. They're not, they're not expecting a chat. Um, so they're just expecting that? what question, sort of a question and answer type. Hundred percent. Uh, it's a question and answer type. Um, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? I mean, ambiance. That's cool. Yeah, it's a question. They're looking for a question and answer ambiance. Correct. Yeah, yeah. there is a word, isn't there? Yeah, I don't know. I had you know uh, Lord Daniel rhythm rhythm. That's it. They're looking rhythm. for question question and answer rhythm. They want that rhythm. Do you know, yeah. Do you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Daniel Finkelstein. Do you know him? Yeah, the, jo- so the journalist. That's and right. Writer. Yeah. Yeah, so he's a he's a lord, right? He's a lord okay. Daniel Finkelstein. Yeah. So I was amazed that he came on. It was only because a friend of mine, he's got four hundred thousand Twitter followers. Yeah. So a friend of mine wrote, Hey, you should do him. He's not really the kind of guy. The irony is that my show's called On the Edge, and he literally just wrote a book called Everything in Moderation. I mean, he's the opposite. <laughs> so it was um but I thought, you know what, well, that's quite interesting for me because it's like you have these people in the center who are like the reasonable thought leaders, so to mm. speak. And then you've got like the, the eccentric people on the edges who are around them for different episodes, I guess. Yeah. And that's how I try to frame it in my mind, you know, uh, mental gymnastics so that, so that it fit for the podcast. I mean, at the end of the day, it was someone with 400,000 followers who's a big name who would give some credence to the podcast. Fantastic, yeah. Um, yeah, a friend of mine just said, you should do that. And I replied, it was under his tweet, Daniel Finkelstein. And I replied saying, he's got 400,000 followers. He's not going to do, he's not going to even see this. And he replied going, yeah, I'm up for it. Just send me an email to this. And I was like, oh my God. 
But uh, when I did it, I was nervous for days because it's one thing talking to an exorcist or a psychopath or, you know, whatever else we've had on the, on the podcast because there's like a level, you know, standing. With him, it was very much like, oh, my God, oh, my God, it's Daniel Fink. He's a big politician guy. I can't mm. handle that kind of intelligence and stuff. And it was very much like after a few minutes, he was he did that thing of like, um, have, we, have, we, have we started recording? And I was like, oh, uh, uh, yeah, I thought this was part of the thing. And I, I had one just that's coming out this Monday with a professor of cognitive science uh, called uh, Lyra Boroditsky. And she, she does this amazing work about how languages change how you think, right? So I was obviously fascinated by that. Stuff like there are, there are languages where instead of left and right, you say west and east, uh, north and south. And so it means that those people are able to think with like uh, cardinal points in their mind. They, they, wherever they are, they can walk around your house and stuff. They'll know which direction north and south is. It's like a superhuman power that's developed with the language that they've learned. Um, so I had her on, and it was the same thing of like, have we started? And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, 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 yes, uh, here's my question. I got all flustered. I get really flustered talking to those. those I, I can understand that. You've been then become slightly more formal, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I'm not used to that. I, don't, I can't do formal. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not very, I'm, I'm more of a fan of the relaxed conversational style for sure. So are you a big reader, Andrew? Yeah. You are? Yeah. Okay. So that's, yeah. that's a pastime then, isn't it? That's something, to, that's a way to switch off. You know what? That's a good point actually. Cause I didn't read for years after um, I studied at uni literature. So it was just like, I, I really struggled to keep up. I've got friends who can read all night. Right. But when I read it, my eyes get very heavy, my eyelids. So I was trying to keep up the whole time for years. Like, I can't read all these books. Like, you know, can I go on spark notes as a, as a, you know, actual university student, go on spark notes and look up the summary of the book. So for a couple of years, I didn't read really after that. I was like put off it. And then I started again in the evenings and it's just the best thing to sleep. It's just, Oh, it's the best. So much better than looking at a screen. So much better. So, um, are there any books that stand out to you that you've read that have had a, had a positive impact on you over the years? I feel like you're trying to get some positivity from me because I've been so negative. (laughs) No, not at all. Actually, it's just, it's a question I ask all the guests. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, listen, the, the, I, I, I'm very sort of anti-pretense, you know, I don't want to be pretentious about anything. And, and I could happily admit that the books that have given me the, the most pleasure and positivity and happiness by a long distance are Harry Potter, one to seven, all of them. Okay. And I've now read them all in three different languages. Um, okay. Four, four different languages. I'm going through them in German wow. now. In German, wow. Sorry. wow. Um, and I just absolutely love them. At the same time, of course, you know, uh, Crime and Punishment, uh, Dostoevsky is 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 one of my favorite ever. It's like a, an obvious big one, but it was just it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. Uh, what a t- like page turner that was. Um, and there was a book I read a year or two ago by uh, a guy called Amor Towles, and it was called A Gentleman in Moscow. And for whatever reason, it's just became my favorite ever book. And it's it's about um, it's about when the Bolsheviks in, in Russia in like the 1910s, I think it was, uh, took over and they kicked out all the sort of like the aristocracy. They, they sort of confined one guy to the, the protagonist of the book to mm-hmm. uh, a life in a hotel. And he's this like aristocrat who's a really nice guy. And it's just all about like the nicer, finer things of life. It's not the kind of book I thought I'd enjoy. Mm-hmm. And just every page was like, like gold. It was just, I loved it. 
Fantastic. And has there been any books that you've read that have had an impact on your career that you that have inspired you in that in that sense? I think that one did, you know, and I think and I think some Orwell stuff has done as well. And I think that's okay. because um, I, I, I I grew up as a teenager and stuff, as a lot of us are, uh, very sort of progressive and lefty, and I had a lot of like certain ideas and stuff, and I still have those ideas. I think to be a good documentary presenter, uh, you've got to be as neutral as possible. And I think being neutral doesn't just mean like acting neutral on camera and then not being off camera. What, one of the weaknesses for, of how I was or with the exorcism film was I just wasn't open in any way to the idea of the paranormal. And I still wouldn't be now, but it's something that my director often pushed me about. And he was saying like, Hey, you're supposed to be neutral. Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, I later did one about abortion, right? And abortion is something that, you know, I'm very pro-choice and very much of the opinion that it's not even my debate to have. This is a documentary I've made that we've sent to festivals recently. Um, but we followed a woman who's known in Argentina as the crazy baby lady. Um, she's a little bit like the matriarch of the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, people, she's like this very loud, extravagant, eccentric, flamboyant uh, woman who goes around screaming at, you know, women who are trying to have abortions and, and that kind of thing. And she's the face of the pro-life um, side in, in, in Argentina. So I followed her and stayed with her family and stuff in the lead up to the vote on abortion, which didn't pass. It didn't become legal, but it still might hopefully in the future. Um, basically what I'm getting to is that it's probably about as far as possible from my philosophy, the idea of like the pro-life thing. It's so far away. And yet I learned to sort of see her in a different light and she, she welcomed us into her home. She took us on the school runs. She was a lot of fun she just seemed like a really good mum, And the reason I say like Orwell, for example, uh, and this book I read a couple of years ago, it showed me a lot of like, I guess the problems with like the far left, that's what Orwell, and the far right, the extremes, but also how they're all just people. They're all just people who have really, really strong ideological beliefs, like we all do. And I guess it taught me to see people as humans. It doesn't mean I start to agree with the crazy baby lady, but by no means, it just makes me think she's just somebody who subscribes to an ideology, but she thinks she's a good person. And, and I, I now think she potentially is a good person as well. Great answer. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's something that I have definitely been trying to do over this past year, which is to, distance and detach myself from what I believe to be true and be open to I arguments and, and uh, ideologies from, from both sides and try not to be swayed. Um, it's, it's not easy because you know, your, there's your emotion is attached to that. There's an emotional reaction to certain viewpoints and to try to try and, and keep a, a level head and, 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 balance both sides of it out is it's it's a challenge but i yeah. do think it's it's a worthwhile endeavor well there's also like non-fiction right that say that that sort of um go along with the line that you're you're saying now is uh you know uh john ronson of course uh, so you've been publicly shamed did you read mm-hmm. that i haven't read it but it's on the list that's great and that was another one of just like it made me understand that I guess when I was younger, a lot of the stuff where I would have been like maybe angry at my dad or whoever it might be for having slightly more conservative views than me, 
that I was actually being a bully, you know, mm. and mm. Uh, not that not that I was necessarily wrong, just but but by not not being open to the other person's views, that's what publicly shamed helped me with i think right the idea of just like we're bullying people and we're enjoying it and we're finding a cloak we're finding a way of doing it that makes it look like it's okay if you're on the left if you have progressive values it's never okay to bully um i think but but well again you know if you're if you're talking to a nazi who wants to kill everyone you know so there are limits the other one is will will store a guy called will store who wrote um a book called Heretics, and he's written another couple of really great books. And he talks a lot about uh, the why we believe things. So a lot of my documentaries are focused on belief and like it, whether it's exorcisms, UFOs, your belief in pro-life being more important, pro-choice or whatever. Um, and he talks about this amazing experiment. Like I can't remember exactly how it goes. I'm not going to do it justice, but it was this thing about like if you have epilepsy or something and you, you have both sides of your brain um, like separated, and there's some sort of thing where if you cover, like everything you see in your right eye goes into the memory of your left brain. I'm, this is definitely not exactly it, but, and everything you see in your left eye goes into the other side of the brain. So the doctors would do this study where they would like cover up, like just show one eye and they would show a scary image, right? And then, then they would close that eye and have the other eye so they, could, they couldn't remember what they had seen, right? But they still had the feeling of being scared. And time and time again, when doctors said, hang on, so why were you scared? So they'd forgotten. I mean, I've explained the, the trick wrong or whatever, but like the, the, the point being they were scared and they'd forgotten why. Every single time the human, the person uh, invented something, often very elaborate, uh, a story for why they felt the way they did. And it was often because you looked at me funny, because you remind me of someone I used to know who was scary uh, or, or whatever, but they invented stories, and that, that just that that was amazing to me. How strong the human mind is, and how amazing, how good it is at creating its own story. Mm. And it, it did make me think I could be wrong about everything. I feel so right all the time. I, it feels like I know everything, but obviously not everything. But it feels like you know Brexit, for example. I'm so much about uh, Remain, uh, especially as somebody who's lived in different countries and stuff and learned different languages, right? But half the population voted differently to me. And if I just say, yeah, but they're all racists, that's not good enough. Mm. As, as a documentary maker, I've, I, I owe it to myself and to, 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 to try and think deeper. You need, a, you, you need, you need a, a balance of opinions, which leads me on to my final question. Uh, mm. what, what does the idea of balance mean to you or not, Andrew? Great segue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, balance. I think the thing, I think I don't have any, I don't have it at all. I don't. And it's, it's a real, I think, again, once you are in the luxury, you know, the, yeah, the, once you have the position where you are just making really good money and you have a nice career and they're coming to you for ideas and you're not having to knock on doors all the time, it's much easier, I imagine, to be able to go, okay, I'm going to work nine to five. And then, you know, mm-hmm. the problem I have all the time, uh, my girlfriend points it out to me is that, I'm I'm constantly saying like, oh yeah, we'll do that next year. Then next year is when you know, like Rodney and Only Fools and Horses. You know, next this this time next year we'll be millionaires. He says, it's always like, yeah, next year once I've got the podcast earning some money and this and that, then I'll take up uh, playing football twice a week because I'll have more time and I won't have a fat belly anymore. Um, so yeah, there's always that thing of like, oh, in the future I'll do it. But the fact is, I think when you're like scavenging 
uh, for, for work. Uh, I think whether you're an actor, whether you're a documentary maker, any kind of creative, you just, that's a luxury that you just don't have balance, I think. I think you pointed out a good one, which was reading, reading every night. I make sure to read every night. If I don't have my book with me, my, I actually read on a Kindle. If I don't have that with me, I'll, I'll be really stressed out. So yeah, it's just that I think the podcast has provided some relief as, as, as well, just being able to speak to people during COVID and have like chats. And mm. it's almost like I'm, I'm going outside or, you know, but I'm actually just sat here. Mm. But yeah, again, I'd love to be more positive. Uh, no, I think you are, that is positive in its own way because you, like I said earlier, you've, you've discovered a career that you're passionate about. And so you, they are, you're at a point in that career where you're going all in, that's your priority right now. And as long as that, you know, that gives you a sense of satisfaction and joy, then I don't see what's wrong with that. Well, I definitely, I can't, I can't keep going at the rate I'm going now. I, I've been saying for, I guess, five years, like, oh, if I haven't broken it to a point, you know, made it to a point where I'm, you know, earning a living only from documentaries and podcasts and books and stuff, uh, then it's time to pack it in and find another career or something. But then two years pass and it's just, yeah, in a couple of years, I'll see, you know, you're on your, you're on your journey, you're on your path and be no, you know, you know, you're not going to quit. You know, that's not going to happen. Can't happen. Can it? Well, event, there has to become a point at some point. I know. I mean, Gervais made it like he was 40. odd, wasn't he? That's my, that's always my mantra. Gervais was 40. Larry David was 41. So one needs to learn to be happy with oneself. Don't they? Well, that's, that, I think that's, yeah. uh, that is the key. If you can that's be, yeah, that's balance. Yeah. If you can have that sort of, internal peace of mind then you're not going to be as as uh, swayed by other people's opinion um I, yeah i do find that happening uh, as, as i get older i find myself caring less and less yeah it's, which is liberating more. it's a liberating oh, yeah. feeling don't care about instagram and all that just yeah whatever so although you did say uh you did say a moment ago that you wanted to massively increase your twitter following yeah but that's for career purposes i know i'm joking i'm joking um andrew where can people find out what you're up to follow me on twitter because no one ever does um but yeah andrew gold underscore okay same it's the same name on uh on instagram twitter andrew gold underscore okay and i put up all the little video teasers for all the podcasts i do with the podcasts on the edge with andrew gold and i got a website where you can see it all because it's a million things, isn't it? Uh, andrewgoldpodcast.com. You can get all the podcast things and do all everything there. No one's going to do it. They might. And uh, get in touch with whoever, if you want. Great. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great chatting to you. Yeah, thanks, man. It was really good. Really nice talking to you as well. Thanks for having me on. Perfect. And there we have it. Andrew Gold in the building via Zoom fascinating conversation really enjoyed chatting to Andrew and getting more of an understanding of of his world and um, yeah I have to say I was quite envious hearing all his stories of living these different countries and having these incredible adventures despite him saying that he spent half the time uh, on his PlayStation and next week we've got a great conversation with uh, an Irish comedian who's very popular already but he's very much also on the rise His name's Shane Todd, and uh, he's a very funny guy. So do check out that one. I'm going to leave it there because I'm in a rush. I've got to get a train to Newquay now because I'm on a shoot. I'm filming there. It's my first time on set in a year. Very excited, but also running late. So thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, see you later. 
Balancing Acts is made in association with the comedy crowd who support independent comedy creators. They showcase the best new videos on ComedyCrowdTV.com and across media platforms. They support independent comedy creators and showcase the best new videos, including adult animation, sketch shows, web series, viral hits, and lots more. So if you're a creator, then do check them out. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.